you have your Bibles, open up to the Gospel of John. We're heading through this Gospel, verse by verse, brick by brick, word by word. And today we're in this portion of the Gospel of John in verses 17 through 24. If you have a bulletin with you, there should be an outline in there. The title of this morning's sermon is Equality with God. Equality with God. John chapter 5, we'll start in verse 17 and work our way down to verse 24. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning, and we thank you for showing us Christ. Thank you for showing us Christ in all of his glory. God, thank you that through Christ, those who are dead can be made alive. That through Christ, those who are weak can be made strong. Enlighten our hearts and our minds to this text of Scripture so that we may see how Christ is equal with God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Equality means the state of being equal, especially in status, in rights, and in opportunities. The word equality is used in a myriad of ways in our culture. There is social equality, in which all people within a group have the same status. There is economic equality, a form of social justice where wealth is distributed equally among the people of a society. There is equality before the law, the principle under which all people are subject to the same laws. There's equal opportunity, which as many of you in the workforce know, it's a stipulation that all people should be treated similarly and particularly at the workplace. There's gender equality, the state of equal ease of access to resources and to opportunities regardless of gender. There's racial equality, when all people of all races are given equal opportunity in all things. Equality. In mathematics, equality is a relationship between two quantities, or more generally, two mathematical expressions asserting that the quantities have the same value. For example, equality between A and B is written A equals B. And in math, there are three kinds of equality. Two symbols refer to the same subject. 
Our two sets have the same elements. Our two expressions solved amount to the same value. These may be thought of as logical, set theoretic, and algebraic concepts of math equality. Well, today, we're not talking about equality in culture. We're not talking about equality in math. We're talking about equality with God. In the Jewish mindset, a claim to be equal with God was considered blasphemy. It was a crime worthy of death. And these words of equality that Jesus spoke here in John chapter 5 are fighting words. And as I approach our text this morning, I'm kind of reminded of a story which circulated for years among the outdoor types, which goes something like this. In the mountains of the Northwest, a man was sitting beside a campfire while he roasted some kind of bird over the fire with eager anticipation. About this time, a forest ranger came upon the camp and asked the camper what he was preparing for dinner. The camper replied that it was a seagull. A frown came over the ranger's face as he informed this poor fellow that it was against the law to kill that particular bird and that he would have to give him a citation. The camper responded by telling the ranger how he had lost his way and consumed all of his food, and in desperation, he had managed to kill this seagull, and it was able, by killing this seagull, to maintain his strength. And so after listening sympathetically, the forest ranger told the fellow that he would let him go this, this one time with just a warning. And the camper thanked the ranger profusely, and just as the ranger was about to leave, he asked the camper, just out of curiosity, what does the seagull taste like? Thinking for a moment, the camper responded, well, I, I would place it somewhere between a spotted owl and a bald eagle. <laughs> Needless to say, this camper's words got him into even more trouble. and He would have been better off not to have said anything at all. And some may think that our Lord's words in this text of John chapter 5 are something like this camper's statement. Jesus was already in trouble with the Jews for healing a man on the Sabbath, and now Jesus tells them that God is his Father. In verses 1 through 16, last week we read how Jesus healed an invalid who had been waiting by the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. And Jesus is therefore deemed guilty of breaking the Sabbath for simply telling this paralyzed man to rise, take up his bed, and walk on the Sabbath. And God's Word never condemns such an action, but if you remember, the Pharisees had added 39 extra Sabbath laws, which were all man-made. And that's why in verse 16, if you look at it, it says, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But after our Lord defends his actions to the Jewish authorities, he is considered guilty of even a greater offense. So in other words, if it wasn't a big deal enough that he broke the Sabbath in their minds, he's now going to say something else that he's claiming here in our text today to be equal with God. And so not only does Jesus mess around with the Jewish sacred idol of the Sabbath, he now messes around with their understanding of God. Not only does Jesus destroy their ungodly focus on their own man-made law, he now calls God his own Father, which was making himself equal with God. The fact that Jesus is equal with God should not cause grief, but great joy. 
the truth is, this should make us marvel at the majesty and at the might and at the mystery of God being three in one. Listen to this thought-provoking quote from Michael Rees in his book, Rejoicing in Christ, as he talks a little bit about Jesus being God. He says this, quote, Sometimes we find ourselves tiring of Jesus, stupidly imagining that we have seen all there is to see and used up all the pleasure there is to be had in Him. We get spiritually bored. But Jesus has satisfied the mind and the heart of the infinite God for all eternity. Our boredom is simply blindness. If the Father can be infinitely and eternally satisfied in Him, then He must be overwhelmingly all-sufficient for us. Is Jesus all-sufficient for you this morning? Do you really know Christ in all of His glory? Are you ignoring Christ today? Are you placing yourself above Christ as the Pharisees did? Do you see Christ as being equal with God? And if so, what does that mean? and all of the practical implications for your life. Well, this morning we're going to be worshiping the exalted Christ as we, uh, as we are going to look at the fact that He is equal with the infinite God. And so I'm going to show you seven ways in these verses that Jesus is equal with God so that you can worship Him and trust Him with your whole heart. And here's the first way, if you want to fill in that first blank in your outline this morning, it simply says this, equal in working equal in working. Look again at verses 17, and then we'll skip to verse 19 to kind of say the same thing in in some ways. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Skip down to verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And so here we're saying that Jesus and the Father are equal in their work. They're equal in their working. In fact, if you'll look at just a couple of these cross-references, look at John. They're all here in the same gospel. John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me to accomplish His, what? His work. Skip over to chapter 5, verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Look at chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. Chapter 14, verse 31. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And in the high priestly prayer, chapter 17, verse 4, Jesus said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So here's what we're seeing here in this first point, this first sub-point, if you will. Like his Father, Jesus is always, at your blank this morning, you're going to have to uh, just listen to the auditory cues here if you want to fill those in, but like his Father, Jesus is always at work. Jesus is accused of breaking the Sabbath, Jesus is accused of working too hard on the Sabbath by having this man pick up his mat and walk. Jesus is accused of doing things that ought not to be done on the Sabbath. 
Here is what Jesus is saying in verse 17, though. He's saying, wait a second, are you guys accusing me of working too hard, working too much, working on the Sabbath? Because I'm going to tell you one thing right now. My father is working until now, and so I am working. Here's what he's saying. If you're going to accuse me of breaking the Sabbath, then you're going to have to accuse God, the Father, of breaking the Sabbath as well. You see, the Father created the world in six literal 24-hour days, and on the seventh day he rested. But that does not mean that he's rested from all of his providential work. That does not mean it is an eternal rest. That does not mean that he's not actively involved in the world today. And so Jesus is making this argument, you're accusing me of working on the Sabbath? What do you think God's doing? Is God still taking a Sabbath rest? Because God has been working all along. Who do you suppose it is that sustains the universe? God does. Who is it that you think ultimately controls the galaxies and the planets? God does. Who is it that you suppose told the oceans that they could go this far and no further? God does. Who is it that tells the mountain goats where they give birth? God does. Who is it that providentially upholds all things? God does. And God doesn't take any time off from being God. God is always at work. He's always involved in the affairs of the universe. For God is always behind the scenes at work for your good and for his glory. And so Jesus is simply saying here, I am always working, just like my Father is always working. And Jesus is always at work. He's always ready to save. Jesus is always ready to heal. Jesus is always ready to show mercy. Jesus is always available. Jesus is always ministering to the downcast and to the broken and to the needy. Jesus always delights in loving you and in helping you and in comforting you in your worst trial, on your worst day, even if it's on the Sabbath. Jesus said, if one of you had a, 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 an animal that fell into the ditch on the Sabbath, are you not going to get him out? Jesus is always at work. And just as Jesus asked this invalid, who had been lying there by the pool of Bethesda for 38 years, do you want to be healed? Jesus shows us in this context that it's not really about, about us uh, waiting, it, it's not about him waiting on us. In a sense, it's about, uh, it, it's about him waiting on us. It's not about us waiting on him. You get what I'm trying to say. It's not about us waiting on him. He's always ready. He's always at work. We may be waiting and waiting and waiting, but Christ is always ready. Your spiritual healing is always available. Your spiritual cleansing is always at hand. Your communion with Christ is always ongoing. Your comfort from Jesus is waiting on you to reach out to him. I mean, it's today that's the day of salvation, but it's also today that's the day of sanctification. Today is the day of satisfaction in Jesus. You have to wait no longer when you talk about spiritual trust and dependency in Christ because he's always at work. You don't have to wait till Sunday. You don't have to wait until camp. You don't have to wait until Summerfest. You don't have to wait for the Shepherds Conference. You don't have to wait for the ACBC Conference. I didn't say ACDC concert, I'm sorry. You don't have to wait for the biblical counseling conference. It's called ACBC. You don't have to wait for school to start back up. You don't have to wait for anybody to love on you. God loves you. Christ died for you. The Spirit changes you, and it can all happen today. He's always at work right now where you sit in your pew, in your week, in your day with all the good things that are happening and all the bad things that are, working, uh, are happening. He's at work and so as his father is at work, Jesus is saying, I'm simply at working. Just like the father's always at work, I'm always at work. Not only that, but we also see in your second little subpoint there that looking to his father, Jesus does whatever the father does. 
What is Jesus doing? Whatever the Father's doing. The Son doesn't work against the Father. The Son doesn't have a new business plan to implement or a new strategy to invoke or a new philosophy of ministry to accomplish. No, the Son does exactly the same work as the Father. And so when Jesus says in verse 19, or uh, says here in this passage, truly, truly, I say to you right there, yeah, in verse 19, when he says that, it, it means that he's saying it in the strongest possible way. Jesus is trying to affirm that what he is saying is true. This is important, he's saying. Listen up. Truly, truly. Is your seatbelt buckled? Are you listening? Are you paying attention? I'm about to speak the truth, and I'm not mincing any words here. And so he says in verse 19, the son can do nothing out of his own accord, but, what, uh, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does Likewise, when he says the son can do nothing of his own accord, Jesus is not saying that he doesn't have any power. He's not saying that he can't do anything in his own ability. He's not saying this because he doesn't have enough strength. What Jesus is saying is that because the father and the son are in one accord, because they are of one mind, because they are of one essence, the father and the son will always be involved in the same work. They will never be pulling against each other. They will never be playing tug of war. They will never be resisting one another in any conversation or in any work at any time. Because whatever Jesus sees the Father doing, He also does. The Father and the Son are in perfect harmony. The Father and the Son are accomplishing the same work. The Father and the Son are about the same business. The Father sent the Son into the world. The Son voluntarily laid down His life. The Spirit convicts the world of sin and regenerates hearts and saves lives. And God the Father has been working tirelessly to bring men and women and boys and girls back into fellowship with Himself. And God has provided a means of redemption through Jesus Christ and the gospel message that would be sent out into all nations. And even from the time of Adam's fall in Genesis chapter 3 upon up to the present time, God has been working ceaselessly and relentlessly and tirelessly. And at the same time, Jesus has been doing the same thing. He is always engaged in His Father's business and in His Father's love and in His Father's work. And this is not limited to six days a week. God the Father and now we see Jesus the Son are at work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And so you can trust in Jesus because he's always at work and he's always there. He's always at work. He never takes a break. That ought to cause us today to see him more clearly in his ability to do the work that he does for God's glory and for your good. Now, a second way, I told you there's seven of them, so we're going to have to move, pick up the pace a little bit. But the seventh way that Jesus is equal with God is that Jesus is equal in being, in being, B-E-I-N-G. He's equal in being. And if you look at verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath in the Jewish mindset, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So we talked about Jesus got into trouble for opposing the Jewish mindset of the Sabbath. Now he's getting into trouble for opposing the Jewish mindset of God. You see, the Jews were monotheistic. 
and rightly so. They saw God as being one. The problem is, is that the Jews were non-Trinitarian instead of Trinitarian. They did not yet understand the fact that the Father had a son, and his name was Jesus. And when Jesus shows up, even though this was somewhat made known in the Old Testament, certainly with better clarity, we see it in the New Testament, when Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. When Jesus says in John 12, 45, and whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. When Jesus says in John 14, verses 9 and 10, Have I been with you so long that you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. This is why Jesus says, again, in the high priestly prayer of John 17 and verse 11, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. A little bit later in that same prayer, verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. What we're seeing in all these cross-references is that the Father and the Son are one in being. You know, sometimes a son can resemble his father. And we use an idiom in our culture to express those similarities. We might say something like, like father, like son, or the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, or he's a chip off the old block. And as a father, I, I, I simply take delight in my children sometimes trying to be like their dad, you know, if they're wearing my shoes or trying to dance like I dance which is really good, or if they're trying to do something that I'm doing, you know, that's kind of cute, right? You look at your kid, and then sometimes you see your kid doing something that's disgraceful, and that's where typically as a parent you look at your spouse and say, hey, that's your kid, you know, and say, so that's your kid. Well, it's not that way with the father and the son. The, the son just doesn't resemble the father. The son just doesn't have something in common with the father. We're saying that in this point and through the biblical teaching of the divinity of Christ, and of, of the fact that, that he's fully God and fully man, that Jesus didn't just act like his father. No, the father and the son, in many ways, are, are the same thing. We're talking about, again, one being in three persons, the, the doctrine of the Trinity. And so here we see, your next blank says, Jesus claimed God as his own father. Now that's significant when he says, my father, in verse 17 When he says, my father, he's saying that's his own father. And so in verse 18, the Jews would have understood at the end of verse 18 that he was making himself equal with God. That's what he was doing. The Jews would never talk like that. They would never say, my father. The the Jews would have never claimed God as their father in that singular sense. For them to do so was claiming to be God. And this is precisely Jesus' point when Even in John chapter 1, verse 14, we read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when we covered that a few months back, we talked about how that word for only Son is the Greek word monogenes. Remember that? And we talked about monogenes means that He's the the only being of its kind. It means it's unique. And so in a general sense, every Christian is an adopted 
son or daughter of God, but there's only one monogenes. There's only one son who's begotten of God, which does not mean that he was birthed, but it means that he's of the same essence of God, that he's of the same substance of God. And so what we're seeing here, when Jesus is saying, my father, he is simply saying he is equal with God. And your next little blank there says, Jesus claimed to be equal with God. This is not what man says about Jesus. This is what Jesus says about Jesus. This is, in a way, Jesus giving a defense of his own deity as he's talking about his oneness with God. I mean, make no doubt about it. This is what Jesus says about himself. This is what verse 18 is saying in plain language. And sometimes a liberal professing Christian will say something like, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, yes, he did. Sometimes a liberal may say something like, well, Jesus never actually claimed to be equal with God. Well, yes, he did. This is why the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. The the Jews believed this to be blasphemy. The Jews thought that this was being sacrilegious. The Jews thought that the statements of Christ contradicted their understanding of the monotheistic nature of God. And it's not that hard to understand why the Jews would get confused. I mean, it is Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8 that says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. It is Isaiah 48, 11 that says, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So if you're just a Jew and you're taking only that text, you would say, wait a second, the glory only belongs to God. How can Jesus say he's God when God has already said, I will not give my glory to another? Well, these statements recorded by Isaiah are true and right, but the Jews misinterpreted the Old Testament to speak of a non-Trinitarian God instead of understanding the orthodox teaching of the whole Bible, which points us to a Trinitarian God, one in being three in persons. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 helps clarify the issue when Paul writes of Christ, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Again, we should rejoice in this perfect unity of the Godhead. We should be thankful that there is no tension or warfare in the Godhead as there is in Greek mythology. If you've ever studied Greek mythology, there's always gods and goddesses that have great power and ability, but what's the problem? They always have one weakness, one Achilles heel, and there's always one god fighting another god or one goddess fighting another god or goddess because there's some major flaw that's going on. Well, you won't find that in the Father or the Son. Equally perfect, equally God, in perfect unity, and so as Christians, as we see that that the Father and the Son are one in being, we ought to see here a great unity of the Spirit. But Paul says we should maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In Ephesians 4, he says, because there is one body and there is one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. And so understanding that the Father and the Son are equal in being ought to promote greater unity in your marriage. If the Father and the Son are one, then when the two of you become one flesh, you're to look to the Trinity as an example for that union in your marriage. It ought to promote a greater unity in your family. It ought to promote a greater unity 
in your church. It ought to promote a greater unity in the universal church, knowing that we're all one in Christ. That's why we pray for other churches. That's why we love other ministries that preach the gospel, because we're one in Christ. And so we see here that Jesus is equal with God in his working. He's equal with God in his being. And the third one is, Jesus is equal with God in knowing. He's equal with God in knowing. Verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. Well, here we read about how the Father loves the Son, and the word for love here is not the word agape. Typically, we think of the word agape as being the highest form of love because it's not just an emotion, it's a choice. But don't, don't get confused here because the word phileo, which is the word he uses here, the Father phileos the Son, is also important because it highlights an intimate relationship of affection and warmth between the Father and the Son. The Father does not just love the Son out of duty. The Father loves the Son out of delight. There is a warmness to this relationship. And because He loves the Son so much so, He shows Him, notice twice in this verse, it says He shows Him all that He's doing. And this word shows means to point out, or it means to make known. And therefore the Father and the Son are equal in knowing. Or we could say it this way, your next blank, the Father shows the Son all that He is doing. He shows the Son all that He's doing. A loving Father is one who shares all with His Son. A loving Father is a Father who shows the Son what He's doing. A loving Father holds nothing back from His obedient Son. For God to love the Son and show Him all things that just as God the Father is omniscient, we see that the Son is omniscient as well. What the Father knows the Son also knows. Let me give you just a couple of examples, and you can just listen. But you remember how Nathaniel was under the fig tree, and Jesus says, I knew him, a man in whom there was no deceit. And Nathaniel got confused. How did you know me? He's like, because you're under the fig tree. Before I called you, I knew you. Or maybe you remember how it says in John 2, 24, that Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He himself knew what was in a man. Or maybe in John 16, 30, you can see it this way. Now we know that you know all things and need no one to question you because we believe you came from God. Or how about in John 21, 17, when he's talking with Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And so what we're seeing here is that if the son knows all things, this means you can believe in him. You can ask him anything you want. You can trust that His ways are best and that His Word is true. We're not talking about someone who's not on par with the Father, and you really need to ask the Father, but not the Son. You know, this is, this is like, no, you can go to, straight to the Son. And this means that Jesus knows how many hairs are on your head. Jesus knows how many freckles are on your face. This means that Jesus knows how many difficulties are in your life. This means that Jesus knows all about the struggles in your heart. Jesus knows all about your failures and all about your fears. And guess what? He still loves you. The, the whole point of him knowing everything isn't like, oh, no, man, he knows all about me, therefore I want to run from him. No, the beauty of that is he knows all about you, and he still loves you. 
He still comes after you. He still attacks you with grace and with mercy and forgiveness. The purpose of his knowledge is a beautiful thing to bring you into a relationship with him because he's all-knowing and he never changes his disposition towards his children. And so if you're here this morning and you're a believer in Christ, be encouraged that he knows all and he sees all and he loves you just like you are and he calls you to change and to put off your sin and to put off sinful habits, and to replace those with godly habits, and he's going to help you all along the way. Now, it's interesting because here in this verse, we also see your next blank says, the Father shows the Son even greater works. So he says he shows him all things, and then it says that he shows, he'll, he's going to show him even greater works than these so that you may marvel. So the commentators talk for a while about, well, what are the greater works that he's going to show him? And we could just limit it to two, and they're actually the next two in our outline, but the two things that he's going to show him is he's going to show him uh, the idea that the greater works that he's going to do is raising the dead, and it's going to be authority to judge all things. And so God the Father is going to get, not only give Jesus all knowledge, but give him ability to raise the dead and the ability to be the judge over all things, and that is supposed to make us marvel. This word marvel means to be extraordinarily impressed or even disturbed by something. In other words, you ought to be blown away by the fact that the Son has power to raise the dead, by the fact that the Son has the authority to judge heaven and earth. You ought to be flabbergasted by that. You ought to be astonished. You ought to be in awe. This truth ought to keep you up at night. It, It ought to get you up in the morning. This truth ought to make you lift your spirits throughout the day because no matter what's going on, you could be comforted by the fact Jesus is in charge. And so be comforted this morning by the all-knowing Son who gave Himself as an ultimate sacrifice so that you may come to know Him as your Savior. This leads us to our fourth way that Jesus is equal with God. I told you those two things, resurrection power and being the ultimate judge. And so number four is equal in resurrecting. Equal in resurrecting. Verse 21, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So just as the Father did this in the Old Testament, that's your next blank, God raises people from the dead in the Old Testament. Time does not permit, but those cross-references will suffice. The story of Elijah raising a widow's child from the dead. In 2 Kings 11, there's the story of Elisha raising the Shumanite son back to life. In 2 Kings 13 is the story of a man who was just thrown into the grave of uh, Elisha, and as soon as the dead man touched the bones of Elisha, he was resurrected. So we know the father raises people from the dead, but your next blank says Jesus raises people from the dead in the New Testament. It's not just an Old Testament phenomenon. Christ does the same thing. The most famous story may be John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Matthew 9, Jesus raises the daughter of a Jewish ruler from the dead. Luke 7, in a town called Nain, Jesus raises a boy from the dead. And all of this ought to point us to John chapter 6. Look at John chapter 6, verse 39 and 40. What's the significance of this? And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up. On the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. And so now we're seeing that this resurrection power makes a difference in your life every day. Because you have hope 
in the fact that you too will be resurrected. If Jesus can raise these dead people from the grave in the New Testament, and since Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that means he can raise you and me from the dead. And that's why Paul says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Isn't it interesting that sometimes we fear things as human beings and we start to think about, man, this could happen, that could happen, what's the worst thing that could ever happen to you? You could have a large car repair payment, you could have your air conditioner go out here in the middle of the summer, you could lose your job, you could lose your house, you could lose the big game, but none of that compares with the worst thing. You could lose your life, you could die. A loved one could die. That's the worst thing that could happen to you. But if you're in Christ, this actually leads us to the best possible joy of eternal life in Jesus because of this fact. Jesus is equal with the Father in resurrection power. Fear not, O ye of little faith. Put your hope in God. Whatever distress or deterrent or disease or discouragement or disaster that you face in your life today, Jesus brings you victory. Thanks be to God who delivers you from the grave. So why so downcast, O my soul, put your hope in God. Look to Christ who is Lord, who is your life and who gives liberty from your enslavement. Bless the Lord. He's the lifter of your countenance. Bless the Lord. He's the lifter of your soul. Bless the Lord. He is the resurrection and the life. The fifth way Jesus is equal to God is that he's equal in judging. Equal in judging. The Father, verse 22, judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. If you notice when I was reading in Psalm chapter 7, we talked about the Father being the judge. And so the question comes up, well, how can the Father be the judge and the Son be the judge? Well, that all goes back to understanding again the hypostatic union. Because the Father and the Son are the same, we understand that judgment goes down the same way. And maybe we could say it this way, Jesus is judge because God appointed him. Who's going to argue with that? Well, I don't understand how Jesus can be the judge. Well, just take it as it's pretty clearly stated in Scripture, right? God appoints him as judge. God the Father appointed Jesus the Son as the judge of the worlds. Here's what it says in John 5, 27. As he has given him authority to exercise or execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. This is what it says in John 5, 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me, uh, on, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. And so with that, we have to understand that Jesus is not just some nice guy who goes around helping people and giving away free food, all right? Jesus is to be revered. He's to be respected. This is what seeing him as judge does. It starts to raise him not only as your big brother and as someone that you could come to and who can be the best friend you could ever have, but he's a holy judge. He's to be respected. He's to be reckoned with. On that final day, he is the judge and his judgment matters. And he determines your case and he determines your eternity and he determines whether it's heaven or hell for you. So you better listen to what he says. And that's why we see here that Jesus will judge according to, your next blank, the Word. 
the capital W. We're talking about the Bible. He judges in accordance with the Bible. You don't have to wonder which way the judgment is going to go down. He's already told us in John 12, 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. You see, Jesus is the Word, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So you don't have to wonder, I have no idea what judgment will look like. No, judgment will look like Jesus' Word. What He's already told us in the Scripture is to be the parameters by which He judges. And Jesus knows not only the outer man, He knows the inner man as well. Jesus knows our motives and our desires and our true souls. And what we see here is that Jesus is telling of His judgment even on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, when he says, on that day, when I, people will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we prophesy in your name? Did we cast out demons in your name? And didn't we do mighty works in your name? Here's what he's going to say to them. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's an example of Jesus rendering his judgment. And in a sense, you have condemned yourself by not believing in Christ and loving him more than you love your sin. And on that day, Jesus will appropriate the proper verdict of who is in and who is out. Jesus knows the sheep and he knows the goats. Jesus knows who believes in the true gospel and he knows who has been playing gimmicks. And that's why he says whoever believes in him should not be condemned. They will not be judged or condemned by Christ, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. John chapter 3, verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people have loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. And so we could ask ourselves, do you love the light or do you love the darkness? And one way you can know is by evaluating your life. Do you run to the light or do you run away from the light? Do you have a love for Christ, a love for His church, a love for His Word, or do you love to give, uh, uh, you know, to, to, or do you love to get out of the, the way and to go feed the desires of the flesh? And uh, you can't get serious about your faith right now. I mean, it's pretty easy to just evaluate your life to see what it is that makes you tick. And if you love Christ and you're walking with Him and you've surrendered your life to Him, you'll know that Jesus is the way, He's the truth, He's the life, and that nobody can come to the Father but by Him. A sixth way that Jesus is equal with the Father, is Jesus is equal in honor. He's equal in honor. Look at what it says in verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Here's what we're reading here, your next blank. No normal person is to share honor with God. No normal person, no mortal person like you or I could ever share honor with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In fact, when people tried to do that in the Old Testament, they were slaughtered. Time doesn't permit for us to talk about Pharaoh or for us to talk about uh, the King, King Nebuchadnezzar or the Prince of Tyre. But all those uh, references refer to how when these men tried to set themselves up as being equal with God, how they were blown away. Okay? But Jesus, your next blank, is no normal person. But he is fully God and fully man. And this is why Jesus must be honored and he must be revered. John 12, 26 says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. 
Therefore, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In the high priestly prayer of John 17, 5, he says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And Jesus says that if you reject him, you reject the Father. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, make it clear that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so for this reason, the Son is to be honored. For this reason, the Son is to be revered. The Son is to be worshipped. The Son is to be adored. The Son is to receive all glory and majesty and praise. And furthermore, if you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. You can't say with a Jewish mindset, I honor the Father, but not the Son. No, the Father is the Son in the sense of, of the same being. And so what joy it ought to bring to the heart of every Christian today that we can honor the Son who is exalted, who is to be worshipped, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Honor Him this day. That's how you honor the Father, is by honoring the Son. Last one, how is Jesus equal to God? Equal in regenerating. Equal in regenerating. Look at verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Your next blank says, you must believe in the Father and the Son. This is what happens when you believe the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit regenerate your soul. And if you hear the word today, the words of life and the words of the gospel, then he says that, that if you believe him who sent him, you can have eternal life. But you must believe the words of the Father. You must believe the words of the Son so that you can come into eternal life. And so we read here that next blank is that you must pass from death to life. This is what must happen in your heart. You must be regenerated. You cannot be regenerated apart from the work of the Son. Just as the Father regenerates and the Son regenerates. And I would even say the Holy Spirit has a very special role and a particular role in the doctrine of regeneration, that you must be regenerated. This is the work of the Father. This is the work of the Son. The Father and the Son are equal in their divinity. I appreciate, as I've shared with you many times, A.W. Pink's commentary. He gives a most excellent quote here by what he calls the late Dr. John Brown. Listen to what he writes, quote, All is of the Father, all is by the Son. Did the Father create the universe? So did the Son. Does the Father govern the universe? So does the Son. Is the Father the Savior of the world? So is the Son. Surely the Jews did not err when they concluded that our Lord made himself equal with God. Surely he who is so immediately connected with God that does all what God does, does all God, that does all God does, does all in the same manner in which God does it, surely such a person cannot but be equal with God. In other words, how else are we supposed to understand it other than he is equal with God? This is what Jesus said. This is what the Pharisees understood. This is partly why they killed him. This is what we must see today, that Jesus is equal with God. Was Jesus equal with God? Yes, but he also offered himself as a sacrifice for sins. 
I mean, what king would give up his throne? What deity would offer up his life? What love is demonstrated here as we see that Jesus is truly equal with God? Just three more blanks and we'll be done. You can look at this on your own, but just simply notice this. Jesus' first words revealed he was here to do his Father's will. All along, we see the equality between the Father and the Son because the first thing Jesus ever said that is recorded was he said, did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Or that could be translated, that I must be about my Father's business. From the very first time Jesus spoke, he's showing us he's equal with God. The second blank says this, Jesus' fight against temptation shows his commitment to do the Father's will. In the first temptation of Jesus, when he was going to turn the stones into bread, he said, no, 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 by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, Jesus is more interested in doing the Father's will than eating bread. And that last blank says this, Jesus' struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane shows his desire to do his Father's will. He says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. What we're seeing is the equality from Jesus. Think about it. First words he ever spoke, he shows equality with God. First temptation he ever faced, he shows equality with God. First discouragement in the Garden of Gethsemane when he almost you know, was struggling in that moment shows that he turns back to say, no, it's not about my will, but it's about the will of the Father. And so just as Jesus was equal with God, he was equally committed to doing the Father's will. Are you this morning equally committed with holy resolve to do all the Father has called you to do? You can't do it unless you come through repentance and faith as a Christian. And then as a Christian, you still can't do it, but it's Christ in you who allows you to obey Him as we marvel this morning at the equality between the Father and the Son. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the opportunity to look at John chapter 5 this morning. Maybe we bit off a little more than we could chew, but certainly our minds are full, our hearts are overflowing as we think about the beautiful truth and doctrine of the fact that Jesus is indeed equal with God. Father, may that truth encourage us today. May that truth help us to be grounded today. May that truth help us to seek to be unified today. May this truth, Lord, allow us to again not just be bored with Christology, but rather to be moved and to be filled and satisfied with this all-sufficient Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our all in all. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.